Think of yourself as dead. You've lived your life. Now take what's left and live it properly. Hello and welcome back to Majorly Useless, a philosophy and literature podcast. I'm your host, Teal Reynolds, and in this episode, I wanted to explore the life and work of Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius. He is, of course, the author of Meditations, one of the most influential and practical philosophic texts of all time. More interested in books than chariot races and gladiator fights, even as a child, Aurelius was heavily invested in philosophy. He spent his days studying with the Stoic philosophers of the time, and this had a profound influence on his rule as emperor. Known as the last of the five good emperors, it was following his death that Rome slowly descended from its long-standing power. Aurelius's rise to emperor is a little complicated, but I'll give a very brief overview. Aurelius's father was the nephew of the current emperor Hadrian. However, his father died when Aurelius was incredibly young, so he was adopted by his grandfather. Now, Hadrian, the emperor at the time, was childless and in need of an heir adopted a son, alias Caesar, not the Caesar you might be thinking of. Unfortunately, he passed away, so Hadrian adopted another son who was actually Aurelius's uncle, Antoninus Pius. The condition of adopting Pius and making him heir was that he, also childless, would adopt Aurelius, putting Aurelius in line after him. Pius actually adopted another son, Lucius Verus, who was the son of alias Caesar. Being younger than Aurelius, Verus had no claim to be emperor, but the two became incredibly close. So much so that Aurelius actually refused to accept his position as emperor unless the two could rule together. Completely unheard of at this time, where it would not be remiss for people to kill their own family if it secured an ascension to power, this was totally unprecedented and honestly really cool. There's a quote from Plato's Republic. Until philosophers are kings, or the kings and princes of this world have the spirit and power of philosophy and political greatness and wisdom made in one, and those commoner natures who pursue either to the exclusion of the other are compelled to stand aside, cities will never have rest from their evils, nor the human race. As I believe, and then only will this, our state have a possibility of life, and behold the light of day. This idea of the philosopher king has been heavily discussed by academics and philosophers alike, with Marcus Aurelius commonly considered an exemplar of Plato and Socrates' ideal ruler. So Marcus Aurelius was Stoic, but what exactly does that mean? A common misconception is that Stoics are unfeeling and pessimistic, but this couldn't be further from the truth. This misconception does stem from one of the core focuses of Stoicism, which is to expect that bad things will happen, but not in a nihilistic sense, more a realistic one. A Stoic anticipates that things will, of course, go wrong, but Instead of trying to control everything that happens externally, a Stoic will seek to control their internal world and how they respond. There are four core virtues of Stoic philosophy. Wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice. 
Stoics build their lives upon these tenets and refuse to let the misgivings of the world bring them unnecessary pain. And you can see this heavily reflected in Aurelius's writing. Meditations is actually just a collation of Aurelius's journal entries, and in which you can clearly see the influence of Stoic virtues. He had a very tumultuous reign, to say the very least. Lots of war, I'm pretty sure the first plague ever, basically just a lot of bad stuff. For Aurelius, meditations was a means of self-reflection, and to bring focus to his goals of being a better leader, father, and in general, just a better person. The original title of Meditations from its first translation was simply To Himself. As such, these writings were intended to be completely personal. They were just as private musings on life and self. Thankfully, they did make their way into the public lexicon making up the text we now know. Based on this and the Yoshida Kenko episode, you may have picked up on the fact that I really enjoy texts of this nature. Literature is usually written in any capacity for the audience. Their thoughts, perspectives, and opinions shape the text, whether intentional by their authors or not. However, with no intended audience, both meditations and essays in idleness are exceptions. These texts allow us to explore not only their contents, but also the author themselves and how they view the world. The fact that Meditations has actually survived and made its way into print is a wonder in itself. Academics don't know exactly how the text survived between Aurelius's death in 180 AD and 900 AD when it was found in the possession of Byzantine scholar Arethus of Caesarea. Aurelius's writing was passed down and shared over these 720 years, but a lot of this time is unaccounted for. Anyway, enough rambling about historical question marks. Let's get into the work itself. In the understanding of a man of chastened and purified spirit, you'll find no trace of festering wound. No ulceration, no abscess beneath the skin. The hour of fate does not surprise his life before its fulfillment, so that one would say that the actor is leaving the stage before he has fulfilled his role, before the play is over. You'll find nothing servile or artificial, no dependence on others nor severance from them, nothing to account for, nothing that needs a hole to hide in. Book 3, Passage 8 prominent theme in Aurelius's writing is the fleeting nature of life, and as such, the importance of striving for consistent honourability. With entries like Book 4, Passage 17, don't live as though you are going to live a myriad years. Fate is hanging over your head. While you have life, while you may, become good. And Book 10, Passage 16, waste no more time arguing with what a good man should be be one. His message is clear. We never know when life will be taken from us, so if we're constantly at our best, we never have to fear regrets. A related entry which ties back to last week's episode comes from Book 8, Passage 5. Often he who omits an act does injustice, not only he who commits an act. You may remember a deontological approach to the trolley problem would have been to do nothing. 
I briefly put forth the argument that to take no action at all was in fact an action in itself. I'm not sure how Aurelius would have approached the trolley problem, but personally I really enjoyed seeing this quote after last week's discussion. If you suffer pain because of some external cause, what troubles you is not the thing but your decision about it, and this is in your power to wipe out at once. But if what pains you is something in your own disposition, who prevents you from correcting your judgement? And similarly, if you are pained because you fail in some particular action which you imagine to be sound, why not continue to act rather than to feel pain? But something too strong for you opposes itself. Then do not be pained, for the reason why the act is not done does not rest with you. Well, but if this is left undone, life is not worth living. Depart then from life in a spirit of goodwill, even as he dies who achieves his end, contented too with what opposes you. Book 8, Passage 47 Aurelius's writing heavily affirms the Stoic beliefs that you should change what you can and accept what you can't. In Book 6, Passage 52, Aurelius writes, You don't have to turn this into something. It doesn't have to upset you. Universally, it's so easy to fixate on what goes wrong, but we have the power to move on from it. Book 4, Passage 8 supplies a helpful reminder to hold close in times of personal distress. It can only ruin your life if it ruins your character. Otherwise, it cannot harm you inside or out. Finally, on this note, Book 8, Passage 42 reads, I do not deserve to give myself pain, for I never deliberately gave another pain. A really beautiful personal affirmation that I think we can all bring into our lives. So, where can you read Meditations? Due to the age of the text, you can find plenty of free versions online. The copy that I personally own is the Farquharson translation, however, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this. The language and phrasing can be a little archaic and even confusing at times. I've heard really good things about the Penguin Classics edition. It's apparently really well suited to modern readers and I intend to eventually pick up a copy for myself. If this episode has piqued your interests and you're looking for a concise, easy to read hard copy, this could be a good starting point. Anyway, on that note, we are definitely out of time for this week's episode. If you like the podcast and would like to show your support, there are a couple ways you can do so. Simply recommending the show to someone you think may like it or sharing the show to your Instagram story is honestly one of the most helpful things you can do. If you do, please tag the show so I can see it and personally thank you. Alternatively, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and feel so inclined to leave a rating and review, it's a massive help in regards to exposure of the show to others. Finally, I love hearing what you think and welcome any feedback or topic requests. I'm still kind of working out the show's voice and where to go with it topic-wise, so anything that you have to say will very likely shape upcoming episodes. The best way to get in touch with me is to DM the show on Instagram. You can find it at Majorly Useless. Thank you once again for all your support. I'll be back in your ears next Tuesday.